Our Old Testament lesson is one verse from Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Our gospel lesson this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, the 35th through 40th verse. I invite us to stand as we are willing and able to do so in body and spirit for the reading of the gospel. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, is it, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them. Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. These are the words of God, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You Methodists, we were almost dancing. I know you were. I know you were inside. And of course, I was practicing for my next profession, and that's directing choirs. So I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, friends, as, uh, as we approached um, Advent and, and Christmas Eve and, and I started looking at all the Sundays, I thought, well, how, how am I going you know, how am I, how, how to maneuver all of this in, into uh, w what I want to say in the, in the last several weeks of, of my ministry at Grace? And so I thought, well, I'm going to do Advent during Advent. I'm going to do Christmas Eve. I'm going to do Christmas Day, which of course was on a Sunday this year. And then I'm never going to skip Epiphany because I love Epiphany and the Magi and the Star and the Journey. And then it's like, oh, well, there's three weeks left. What do I, what do, I do with three weeks? Well, why don't, I, why don't I preach on my favorite scriptures? Well, I, I, if you've been around very long, you know that a lot of times I will, start, I will start the sermon by saying, this is one of my favorite scriptures. And so I, I realized other than like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and some parts of Paul, I really like all of the Bible. Um, th those I could probably skip over pretty quickly. But I, I thought, well, okay, maybe, maybe what I should do is is, is look at the, at the Bible kind of in a gestalt manner. Look, look at it as a whole. Because if the scriptures are going to continue to live, if, if these ancient writings are going to continue to live, uh, they have to have larger themes that speak into our lives. And, and if you've been to, uh, to uh, any of my uh, services of death and resurrection, you, you hear me say every single time, I believe all of our stories are written in the scriptures. And I, and I believe that. But what that means is that we have to extrapolate, Right. Those, those major themes out of the Bible. It, it, it's um, about 10 years ago, it was very trendy to say it's, it's taking a look at reality from the balcony uh, rather than being in the middle of the dance floor, that you get a very different perspective. And, and then I realized, well, I, I don't want I, I to just do a gestalt of the Bible because the gestalt of the Bible speaks into the specific stories, but the specific stories speak into the gestalt. So, of course, I want it all. I want to do both and. And when I realized there were three weeks, I thought, well, okay, <laughs> it might, might be good for people of faith to look at what the Lord requires, because that's what Micah says. What does the Lord require? So if you're going to preach three more times, you need to look at the three things the Lord requires, to do justice, to love mercy or kindness, and, and to walk humbly uh, with our God. 
Micah doesn't start out, of course, with just that verse. That's the most well-known verse. But Micah, like the other prophets, is critiquing God's people, most particularly those of us who live in relative abundance. Because what's happening is that we're all going to our worship services, and the pastors of those worship services were making everybody feel better for the little that they gave, the checks that they wrote, the offerings that they brought, and and, it, and, and they believe that appeased God so that how they treated the least, the last, and the lost, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, that, that didn't matter because they were appeasing God with their offerings. And so Micah begins to critique all of that and says that they have forgotten what it is that God asked of them in the first place and that, and that God isn't happy with them. And in the, in the beginning of, uh, of Micah, of this particular chapter of Micah, Micah says God has a controversy with the people. I, I love that. Uh, God has a controversy. It, 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 he could have said God has a bone to pick with you. He could have said God is so angry God's going to condemn you. But instead he says God has a controversy with you and, and God wants to contend with you. Any of you have a controversy? Sometimes people will say, I am a controversy, but I, I have controversies. Perhaps you do as well. We are in the midst of the, the weekend that we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr., right? One more three-day weekend. But Martin Luther King Jr. had a controversy with God's people because race relations were anything but just. There were those who had more melanin in their skin than other people did, and they were being treated like animals, as less than human. So Martin Luther King Jr. had a controversy, and as a, as a pastor, he, he tried to face into that controversy, and did face into that controversy with peaceable means, and lost his life doing so. Rosa Parks had a controversy. She had a controversy that that hard-working men and women who had more melanin in their skin than their neighbors were forced to sit at the back of the bus, were not allowed at the front of the bus. So she walked into the bus one day and sat down on the front seat because she had a controversy. John Lewis had a controversy when he walked across that bridge in Selma, Alabama, and was beaten nearly to death. And he said, instead of controversy, cause good trouble because he had a controversy. Nelson Mandela had a controversy with apartheid. Do you have a controversy? You see, controversy is, is when we want to contend with things that are not, not right in our society, not right in our community, that, that, that do not come out and, and offer all people the opportunity to reach their potential. I, I hope we all have a controversy. Micah says God has a controversy with God's people. And he says that God says this, what have I done to you? And with what have I wearied you? I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I released you from slavery. I offered you leaders in Moses and Aaron and Miriam so that you would, so that you would see the light of my salvation. You see, a, a good prophet always brings a, a prophetic critique, but also brings a, a, brings a pastoral compassion. Afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. 
And sometimes we're both of those all at the same time. So God isn't asking, isn't saying to them, wait till I condemn you, wait till I judge you, wait till I throw you into the fire. God says, what have I done to you and what have I wearied you? These are all the things I, I've done. Now, here a gestalt idea. God, no matter how frustrated God gets with God's people throughout the course of this book, God never abandons God's people. And when God came closest, perhaps, in Genesis with Noah, when God saw only evil everywhere, God remembered Noah and didn't abandon humanity. God doesn't abandon us, this Bible says to us. As angry and frustrated as God gets, as much controversy as God has with us, God doesn't abandon us. And perhaps because they don't hear the words of condemnation, stark condemnation that they've heard in the rest of Micah, they hear Micah in this moment. And so the human beings begin to say, with, with what shall we come before the Lord? Shall we bring burnt offerings? Shall we bring calves a year old, the most valuable ones? Shall we bring a thousand rams? Only the richest could provide rams for, for atonement. Shall we provide 10,000 rivers of oil? And finally, the pinnacle. Shall we give you our firstborn? <laughs> the blood of the fruit of our bodies for the sins of our souls? See, they don't get it. <laughs> they think that God wants the kind of retributive justice that we often want when we're treated unfairly. That God will want some kind of expensive retribution. It, it, it shows what God's people value. It shows what we value. When we want to appease God, we think of what would we want most. Well, maybe $1.35 billion wouldn't be bad with a Mega Millions ticket, right? Then, then we say, well, I, I, I have often said, I'll give 90% of that and just keep 10%. That'll make God happy that I threw my money down the drain. That's what God wants. God, what shall we bring you? Shall we bring you burnt offerings? Shall we bring you calves a year old? Shall we bring you 1,000 rams? Shall we bring you 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall we bring you our firstborn, the fruit of our body for the sins of our souls? That, that will give you retribution. You'll like that. That's what we're focused on most often in this particular country. The kind of justice we're focused on is retributive justice, and we need that for a civil society. Consequences for the most heinous of crimes, most especially. But friends, when we get it wrong because we are not perfect people, when we get it wrong, there is suffering. I reread again the story of of a pastor who lives in this conference and serves in this conference named, named Daryl Burton. He's the founder of uh, an organization called Miracle of Innocence. You see, Daryl lived in St. Louis and, and was on parole for having committed a burglary and had worked with his parole officer to, to go back to community college and to start his life again. And he was picked up for a murder. And he knew that he was in Washington State when the murder supposedly happened, or when the murder did happen. And so when he was picked up and, and taken to jail, he thought, this will all get figured out. Daryl is very dark of skin. 
two or three days of a trial, and he was convicted and sentenced to 50 years of retributive justice in a Missouri prison without possibility of parole. And before he knew it, he was in prison. Unjustifiably. And he said he remembers as he walked through the gates of that prison in Missouri, it says, here ends your hopes, your family, and your dreams. He said he'd been there a while and he remembered the words of his grandmother when she would drag him to church as a child, which he thought was so irrelevant. And he would kick and scream and yet she made him go. And she said to him, coming out of church one day, boy, one day you're going to need Jesus. I'll ho I hope you'll remember to call on him. And Daryl says after he had been in prison a while and realized no one was coming to save him, <laughs> he began praying to Jesus. He said, through gritted teeth, I... I I thought I have to pray for my enemies, but I'm going to pray for a rock to fall on them. I'm going to pray for them to fall off a cliff. Through gritted teeth, I began to pray for them, for other things as well. And he went to the library, and he studied the law. And, and, and one night on 60 Minutes, he, he heard of a group called Centurion in, in, back east, who was a group that was working for the exoneration of prisoners who had been convicted unjustifiably. And so he contacted them, and they looked at his case, and they said, absolutely, but we only take two cases a year, and so it will be 10 years before we can get to your case. So he said, I realized I had to work on my attitude. I had to work on the person I was going to be. So he kept reading the scriptures, and he kept working and allowing God to work on his heart, and and after those 10 years, and he kept writing letters to them two or three times a year to remind them that he was still there. And after 10 years, they took his case. And it took eight more years to get, to get the conviction overturned. He said, as I was walking out of the prison, I started chanting, praise God, praise God, praise God. He didn't know about computers. He didn't know about cell phones. But in the course of his journey, he had promised to God that he would give his life to him and that he would, and, and that he would make, it, make God known to other people. And so he went through seminary and, and, and graduated with a master's degree and, and has started this Miracle of Innocence Project, this group that I chair, the District Committee on Ministry that sees candidates for ministry. Daryl sits on those interview teams and reminds each one of us when we think life is unfair, what sometimes injustice looks like, perhaps aided by the color of your skin. Do we have a controversy with retributive justice when it's not meted out fairly? Do, do we sit here and feel safe because we don't know any of those people? We don't know Nelson Mandela. We know he was incarcerated unjustly, but we don't know him. We don't know Rosa Parks. We don't know Martin Luther King Jr. We can sit and pick apart their lives and say how imperfect they were. Well, guess what? We do know Daryl. <laughs> He's in our midst walking around. The verse he lives his life by is, is Luke, Luke 23, verse 35. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Friends, what kind of justice do we live in our lives? Jesus says in the gospel, 700 years after Micah has written, Jesus says in the gospel, the day will come 
in Matthew's gospel. It's, it's apocalyptic. It's a vision of the end times. The day will come when the king and his angels will descend on the throne and glory will surround him. And he will say, Bless, uh, come to me all those who are blessed by my father in heaven and inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the beginning of time. For I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you cared for me. And the righteous will say, when was it we did any of that? And he will say, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. So if we put the Micah passage together, what does the Lord require of you? And we want to write a check and we want to give God what we value what happens in God's response in Micah and what happens in the response in the gospel? The righteous will say, Lord, when was it we saw you all those things and did that to you? Because you see, they're not doing it to earn their way. What God wants is not an outward form of being Christian. What God wants is inner transformation for a life lived with our faith. As Stacy said, it's not knowing about God, it's knowing God to such an extent that we live like Jesus as closely as we can. I didn't have Wes go on and read this part, because this next part is the only place where Jesus talks about hell and cursing. Depart from me, you that are accursed, into a fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's the only time Jesus preaches about hellfire and damnation. And I'm glad he did because I get to say it. Depart from me, you that are accursed, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me to drink. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was, I was, in, I was sick and you, you didn't comfort me. I was in the prison and you did not visit me. When was it we didn't do that? When you didn't do it for the one of these, the least of these, you, did it, you didn't do it for me. Inner transformation, not outward form. That's what God wants. That's a gestalt for this whole Bible. What God wants is the transformation of our hearts and our inner lives, not, our, not, not the, the action of, of taking out a check and trying to bribe God, to appease God, to make sure we get into heaven. About my third year of ministry, a very faithful woman, and I say that sincerely, very faithful woman, made an appointment to come visit with me to tell me she was leaving Grace, which she did. And she came in to tell me why, and I give her credit for that because a lot of times people will just disappear, and I never know why. I didn't know that she had written a five-page letter single space to the bishop about me, but anyway, she did come in to visit with me. And she said, you're leading this church to destruction. I said, oh, well, okay, hello. She said, first, you're a woman. And I said, well, thank you. <laughs> she said, that's against the Bible. And she said, you know, you don't have to say things specifically for us to know what you think about social issues. She said, I, I know that you support illegal aliens. And I said, you mean undocumented immigrants? Same thing. 
I know that you want as many black people as you can get into this church. And I said, I don't know if you've looked around, but I'm not being very successful. She said, and worst of all, right? Those she whispered that, because it probably should be whispered. It's so bad. And so I said, I believe you to be a very faithful person. I, I would like you to point out to me in the Bible where it, says that, where it says that God doesn't want all these folks that you've listed. She turned right to the writing from Paul that said women aren't to teach in the church, so I had to give her that one. Of course, then it says when women do teach in the church, they're supposed to keep their heads covered. So, you know, what do you make, what do you make of that? She couldn't find the others. So I pulled out Matthew 25. And I said, do you know this is the only place that Jesus talks about people being cursed and sent into the fire, prepared for the devil and his angels? That's like bad. That's pretty bad. Did, have you read that list? of people that are cursed. Let's read that together. And so I, I read it. I didn't recite it. I, I read it. I said, you know, I, I do pretty well feeding the hungry because right center of grace, at that time we were feeding about 65 people and I wasn't cooking, thank you, Jesus, but I was going over and cheerleading for, for Christy Cooper and, and for um, Lois Waters and Cindy Hahn and, and Tina Hoover who were cooking every week. I was their cheerleader. And, and I'd be there to, you know, try to make the people who came to eat laugh because that's kind of, you know, I'm an entertainer, so that's what I'm going to do. I said to her, I'm, I'm doing pretty well with that. And, you know, I donate clothes to the Center of Grace, so I, I feel good about that. And if anybody ever wants a glass of water, I'm, I'm, I, I will get one for them. And, you know, as a, as a pastor, I visit the hospital a lot. And believe me, if I see people naked, I go get them a robe. I said, but I don't, I don't know about you. I can, open my, I can open my calendar for you, and I do not have in there a scheduled visit to a prison. I said, you know, I, I visited prison one time in seminary. We had to as, a, as, a, as an exposure thing. And I said, I have to tell you, when the, when the second gate clicked behind us, I thought, I'm going to die. I, I'm not, I, I, can't, I can't deal with this. I'm locked in here. I can't get out. I have to rely on someone else to get me out, and I don't do well with that. I said, I have visited a, a prison a couple of more times since then, but I'm not good at it. I'm, I don't feel called to it. And yet Jesus says, if I don't do that, I'm going to be accursed. How about you? Th does your calendar have some prison visits on it? She says, you're trying to confuse the issue. And I said, no, I'm quoting the Bible. You, 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 you are standing this morning talking to me, using the Bible. And so I'm, I'm quoting the Bible. We, we have the same Bible. This is the only place, I challenge you to find any other place where Jesus says, depart from me, you who are accursed, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And nothing that you've told me fits in that list. We didn't talk much more, and she didn't want me to pray for us. She left rather quickly and loudly. I don't feel superior. I know her heart wasn't changed. I'm sad. 
because I know her to be a faithful, I knew her to be a faithful, I think very authentically faithful person. But when we use the Bible to justify injustice, God has a controversy with us. I'll leave you with the kind of justice God defines for us. It's called restorative justice. It doesn't mean that there are not prison terms. It doesn't mean that there are not consequences for heinous crimes. It means that even those facing the consequences deserve the opportunity to be restored. And are we working for that together as a society, as a community? Do we care? Our friend Daryl, Reverend Daryl Burton, he goes and visits prisons three to four times a week. And he doesn't go just visiting those who deserve to be exonerated. He visits those who did what the justice system said they did and who are there justifiably, and he visits them. And he brings to them the grace and forgiveness of God, the good news of the Scripture. Because he believes that all God's children deserve restorative justice. So my challenge for you today is to not close your eyes to retributive justice when it is not meted out fairly and to in turn work for restorative justice, even in our own lives without those incarcerated, those who've done wrong, but whom we can still love and lift up. Amen.